Outspoken with Joy Silver is presented by Harcourt's Desert Homes. Scott Palermo and James Sanick will be here in a few minutes to share more about their superpowers when it comes to helping you with your real estate needs. We're thrilled to have them on board. You'll find them at harcourtsdeserthomes.com. People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show today. Uh, we're going to talk about policing pregnancy and promoting the big lies uh, with Jessica Pishko. She's coming back to our show and she's here today. Welcome, Jessica. Hey. Hi there. Uh, Jessica uh, is a writer. I believe you're in Texas. Am I right, Jessica? That's right, in Texas. Yes, she's, oh, and then there's so much to talk about in Texas, and we will get into that. Uh, she graduated with a JD from Harvard Law School, and she went to Columbia for her MFA. She practiced corporate law, specializing in securities fraud, and talks and writes and talks about what's happening in the United States and in the world and in the Constitution, and basically about protecting the rights of people. So um, let's get right into it, Jessica. Um, in 2018, we saw the ex-president standing with 44 sheriffs, and they were showing how they uh, just loved him, and they were in alignment with him concerning all his views, and, and particularly his media views, you know, how he talks about, everybody criticizes me unfairly. And, uh, and in previous articles, Jessica, you explained that in American history, uh, sheriffs served as chief law enforcers, and the Western states copied this model. Could you tell our audience a little bit about how that happened and what that was all about? Sure. Um, so the sheriff is an interesting office because it is, among other parts of the U.S. government and law, it came from England and was imported into uh, America. So there have been sheriffs uh, in what is now the United States since colonial times, but they took on a very different character and much more important one as the United States expanded westward. Um, as a result of that, you know, there was sort of rapid westward expansion. There was a lot of militarization because uh, alongside that, as white people moved west, there was, you know, they fought against Native Americans. They fought wars against uh, people from Mexico and, you know, French settlers. So uh, the sheriff became the most important law enforcement figure, largely because the West was seen as kind of, you know, quote unquote, undeveloped and lawless. And so they used, you know, kind of coming from this quasi-vigilante uh, justice, quasi-military style uh, policing, the sheriff sort of emerged as the primary law enforcement, which is why, one of the reasons why sheriffs are elected uh, is but, because it comes from that history before there were sort of professional police. And so the the, and it, the states, like the, the western states, a lot of them were in American territories and hadn't even... Um, had uh, state law in particular, so this, these sheriffs who were kind of modeled on the southern sheriffs, 
um, I think, uh, were the word in um, in law enforcement. In fact, they might have been the only law enforcement agency uh, in the territories that later became states, um, but they often included an elected sheriff positions as those particular states start drafting their constitution, right? And California is one of those states. And it is. California is. And in California, um, some of the sheriffs also serve as coroners, and coroners are in charge of officially determining the cause of death, whether a death is a homicide or an accident. And this one thing that you said in one of your articles about this was like, I don't know, totally frightening. There's generally no requirement for sheriffs who are coroners to have had previous medical expertise. <laughs> I I okay. find that quite chilling. <laughs> right. So the coroner is another. It's interesting because the coroner is another unusual position that also derives from kind of old British standards on in. Most places where there are coroners, there's no requirement that the coroner be a medical uh, personnel. So there are there are people called medical forensic or pathologists who are usually the individuals who are doing actual autopsies. Um, but in places where they still have coroners, that where the offices haven't been eliminated, um, those are usually elected officials or sheriffs, <laughs> or they have or they're combined with the sheriff's office. Um, and they do generally decide, usually what the quarter has to do is decide whether an individual's death was a homicide, so it was caused by another person, caused by natural causes, um, or caused by an accident. So uh, that, and Chad Bianco is a sheriff coroner. Well, that's, uh, that, and, and, and so I guess the question um, and even in these, and we're, we're moving towards that, that, that medical and, and health care place uh, in our policing pregnancy, which was your article of uh, April 12th. We're moving towards that right now. But that how can a coroner have no background in medicine and how can the position of sheriff or coroner not be political? I think that it's impossible. It's, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I would argue it's it's. I would argue that there's very few positions that are not political, but I would say that if a position is elected, it's nearly impossible for it not to be political because they simply need to have uh, votes. And so, you know, as a result, they'll need to, you know, change their behavior such that people will vote for them. I mean, I think it's, and I also think that what we are seeing, what we have seen over the last many years is a is a consolidation of politics from national down to local so i do think if you looked at politics maybe a couple of decades ago you would see less alignment on local state and national levels so by that i mean voters would not necessarily vote the same party ticket on all levels of government right they might they might change the way they vote depending on whether it was a local election, but maybe in a national election they always vote Republican, but in you know state or local elections they might vote different parties. So, but I think we've seen that people are starting to consolidate all the way down the ballot, mm -hmm. which is kind of further politicizing the office and also making it such that even a really local official like a sheriff or a coroner must sort of appeal to that party standard. 
You know, that's really true because um, obviously county politics are supposed to be nonpartisan, but that's not working so well for even at the level of school board, which we've seen certainly the politicization of what gets taught at schools is now a part of the politics on the, the same politics that we see at the national level. And so there, there, there are no races that really are nonpartisan, as it were, because, you know, you have to raise money in order to run. And business has its power, certainly since Citizens United, uh, which is really, from my perspective, the downfall of democracy right there and then. Um, you're going to raise money, and the, the the business interests who have the most money are going to get to call the shots as to uh, which representatives even make it out of the box in order to be in the, in the race. Yes, I mean, I, I agree with you. The uh, school board is a perfect example. I don't... I agree with you that I don't know that school board races were particularly politicized, one might say, meaning that people did not necessarily align themselves with, like, you know, big D Democrat, big R Republican when they ran for something like school board. Yeah. And so how the the power and, and, and politics seems to be really uh, less about certainly not about serving the citizenry, but more about those particular uh, for for candidates to protect their personal power, uh, rather than uh, in a, in in serving, and certainly from the sh- uh, sheriff's point of view, serving and protecting and being a public safety uh, entity, an agency as kind of uh, no longer no longer can be defined in that way. And I think at one point that that kind of was supposed to be the point, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that for, you know, I think for many people, it never was, it never felt that way. And I think, you know, looking at general law enforcement, right, this whole, like, regime of law enforcement, I think it it was never a system that I think suited everybody or served everybody particularly well. Um, I do think, like, since 2020, there's been more of an intense scrutiny by all kinds of people to appreciate that police departments are really not working well, right? That there's fundamental problems that I think issues that that many thought were being reformed have not been reformed. And so instead of feeling like, oh, well, policing has, you know, become, we've progressed or things have changed, that, that I do think in the last two years people have really of all races and types have un- begun to understand that there's like this sort of deep stagnation and things aren't changing. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think that sheriffs are a, a part of that. Mm-hmm. And then they're interestingly also this sort of strange part of a national political conversation because they are elected and, and because in many states they do run as um, with a party affiliation. Um, and so, and because as you, we sort of pointed out before, that politics has become more polarized. So the people running for office are running much more strongly on a big party platform rather than maybe local, I think what we would argue are local concerns, right? Like what we would consider smaller things that uh, local officials should be concerned about. I think you're right. I, I guess I guess when I was thinking about um, enforcement, I was sort of thinking of what 
we were taught about enforcement versus what it really what it really the history of policing and enforcement was really about i mean basically protecting the the uh, property of of those of uh, who had white privilege i mean i think what we basically see now is a uh, for want of a better um, visual, uh, the sheets are off and uh, pillowcases are off the heads and now we see what's really <laughs> what's really been happening all along in our history as to um, where enforcement stands and, and how the government is, those who are in power and those who have these interests are, are trying to maintain their positions and their, their power in the society right now. So it's quite a war. Uh, probably it's uh, the continuation of uh, basically the Civil War. I mean, I think there are many, many problems that we have not solved since then, and it's just ripped it all uh, open, and now it's more visual. And how this works for women, I think, is really kind of um, (laughs) critically, um, it has to really be watched. And uh, we know that um, women getting the vote, women were considered property, et cetera, et cetera, all happened all along. But when we look at some of the tools of um, what the enforcement crowd is enforcing is this kind of Christian fundamentalism, which kind of wants to put women in some kind of place where she's back to being subjugated to her husband's philosophy. And yet, and yet we see people like Bobart and Green and, 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 women who are basically um, colluding with uh, keeping that privilege and power in place. I think that's um, that's really telling. Uh, Brittany Poulaw uh, was going to prison, and she was having a miscarriage, and she was 21 years old, an Oklahoma woman, and she was convicted of manslaughter in the first degree after losing her baby at 17 weeks. She spent a year and a half in jail during the pandemic, and all because she couldn't afford the $20,000 bond. And after a one-day trial, she was facing four years in a state prison. Now, you have a story about um, Lizelle Herrera. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so Miss um, Herrera was, um, it appears that she, you know, this is sort of based on documents that have been made public, so I, I want to be clear that I, not everything has been made public, but it appears that um, she is 26 years old, that she went to a hospital because she was experiencing uh, some sort of distress. Uh, it appears that she miscarried. Um, and then at that time, this was in January, the someone, and we don't know who, probably from the hospital, uh, called the sheriff's office. So this is Star County, Texas. So called the sheriff's office and reported that there was a crime um, and that they argued that the crime was that she had gotten an illegal, uh, they argued that she had terminated her pregnancy illegally. So they sort of, they made this covet that she, it was very unusual. Many things about this case were quite unusual, but one of the unusual things was that the, she was, they held a grand jury and indicted her for something that was not really a crime on the book, so it was knowingly and cause, uh, intentionally knowingly causing the death of her fetus by a self-induced abortion. So, now to be clear, even in Texas, um, <laughs> self-induced abortion is not on the books as a particular crime. Um, how, however, they seem to imply that this was done as like a manner of homicide so I guess that was sort of the charge so that was one of the unusual things um, and then after an outcry the district attorney dropped 
the charges against her. But at that point, she had already been in jail. Uh, she had already paid quite a lot of bail. You know, I'm sure that what she experienced was extremely traumatizing. Um, and I think, you know, because in Texas we have we have SB8 and the status of legal abortions at the moment is pretty up in the air. And, you know, in this area where Ms. Herrera lived, it's an area of Texas that's very close to the border of Mexico. It's called the Rio Grande Valley. And it's a section of Texas where there's very few hospitals. Um, there are very, very few women's health care clinics. So it's a wide area. It's quite rural. Um, it has a quite high incidence of poverty. And so access to women's health care and abortions was already pretty difficult. Um, so I think that in the mind of many people, this felt like sort of intentionally terrorizing uh, people and frightening them from going to the hospital if they were experiencing you know, pain or discomfort or bleeding um, for fear that they might get reported for committing a crime. Mm. That's, uh, uh, that's going to be um, quite a thing about how uh, women are affected in that way. And I, I want to get back to SB8 and talk a little bit about that. Stay with us, Jessica. But first, we want to welcome aboard our new title sponsor, Harcourt's Desert Homes. Hello, I'm Scott Palermo. And I'm James Sanak. We'd like to take a moment to share with you our unique and successful approach to working with Coachella Valley home buyers, sellers, and real estate investors. Our goal is to build a people-first brokerage, and a significant part of that is making certain that our customers can always count on working with quality, like-minded agents. At Harcourt's Desert Homes, James, myself, and our extraordinary team of dedicated real estate professionals are privileged to work with the best clients through our commitment to personal service and attention to a client's every detail. That commitment is how we have achieved the honor of being ranked at the top 1% of realtors in the desert cities. We have been named to the best of the best realtors in the Coachella Valley by Palm Springs Life magazine. Scott mentioned the word unique a moment ago, but it's not just a marketing buzzword for Harcourt's Desert Homes. In fact, it's our superpower for helping clients worldwide. Harcourt's International is one of the half dozen most successful real estate companies around the globe with more than $34 billion in annual revenue. And it's the unique selling proposition that led us to affiliate our brokerage with Harcourt's here in the Coachella Valley. That's right, James, Harcourt's Auctions. This platform separates our brand from the rest of the pack. Think of this as a marketing tool similar to Christie's Art Auction in New York City. Just as with other luxury items and fine art, Harcourt's Auction sells luxury real estate to high net worth consumers. For more than six years, our brokerage has won more than 100 sales production awards. We'd love to put that achievement to work for you. We specialize in properties in Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage, Palm Desert, Indian Wells, and La Quinta. If we can help you, please reach out to us at 760-864-4100. Again, that's 760-864-4100. Or visit Harcourt's Desert Homes online at harcourtsdeserthomes.com. That's H A R. C-O-U-R-T-S DesertHomes.com Harcourt's Desert Homes We're located at 119 North Indian Canyon Drive in downtown Palm Springs. 
Remember, in real estate, knowledge is power. And we're back with Jessica Pishko. Uh, she's written some very important pieces from my point of view. Uh, she most recently had a piece in Bolts, and she also wrote in, uh, I believe it was Medium, then I saw your piece about policing pregnancy. And policing pregnancy is not anything new, um, actually. Um, the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, which is a reproductive justice organization, did a study that found Between 1973 and 2005, there were 413 cases in which a pregnant person's civil liberties were denied on the basis that they were endangering a fertilized egg, an embryo, or a fetus. And uh, NAPW has said that between 2006 and 2020, they pinpointed uh, 1,254 such cases. So tell us a little bit about what SB8 is about. So SB8 is, and and the reason why um, the case against Ms. Herrera was incredibly confusing um, was that SB8 is a civil enforcement action. Mm -hmm. So SB8 was passed in Texas, and what it basically does is enables people who know of, it enables people to bring a civil lawsuit against anyone who assists in uh, a insists in helping a woman obtain an abortion, which is also very confusing. But the idea is that it's not criminalizing the woman who is seeking to terminate a pregnancy, but rather anyone, the the law is written so broadly such that anyone from a doctor or a nurse practitioner uh, or a um, a doula or Uber driver or, you know, something like that could be could be sued civilly for, I think they about $10,000, so it could be civilly sued for assisting with someone in terminating a pregnancy. And again, all of this is very broad, so I think a, a great deal of the concern is that it's covering many different things that people might do. Um, and it also, so it is effectively making it impossible for women to get uh, abortions after about eight weeks. So, you know, given this, plus I think the Supreme Court case that we see that is likely coming down the pike, um, it it does indeed make the landscape for women's access to health care extremely, it looks very bad. I mean, you know, to be fair in Texas, I think that it's been narrowed and narrowed over time, but just the idea that, you know, people are unsure what's available and what's legal. People don't know if there are abortions. I think many people, um, you know, who casually look at the news just assume that abortion is now illegal and is not accessible. So it's, you know, it generates also, I think, a lot of of complications and confusion for people who are trying to figure out what to do. Now, we've had, I believe we've had some conversations uh, on other shows, but I'm I'm particularly looking at this SB8, and it's almost like it's a trial run on a case which is negligible as to validity, but it's like, is the citizen's arrest technique going to work uh, with this particular um, bill, and how can the process for using that mechanism or methodology that arrest um, situation, how can it be used in other cases as we go forward to tamp down the civil rights of 
of the people who are not part of the percentage of the um, those who are privileged and white and Christian and nationalist. And so it seems um, as we move more into the the oppression moment of our of our of our not so democracy democracy um it looks like this is a test case why would they have picked somebody in a rural area to test this out do you think well i you know and i'm going to say that i'm making a few um i'm making a little bit of like educated guesses based on what i know goes on in this region in texas my suspicion is that Someone at the hospital is extremely opposed to abortion and thought that and thought that this young woman had in some way gotten or obtained probably a medical abortion. Mm-hmm. So probably she had taken one of the plan uh, B. Yeah, one of the plan B type pills that can induce an, can induce a miscarriage that quite possibly it had either not worked completely or something had gone wrong. And that this that somebody was upset and decided to um, report it to the police. I, I, you know, I think you have to appreciate that. And certainly in Texas, this is true that you know many anti-abortion groups are, feel extremely empowered right now. I mean, there are many types of people and groups who oppose abortion for for different reasons, right? So there's many people who oppose it on religious grounds, and I do think there's folks who have varying views upon it. Um, in Texas right now, the, you know, opposition to abortion as a kind of religious, and indeed even, I think, women's health, women's right issue has really grown. And so what you see is a lot of people who are very energized around the issue. Um, and so I do think that that, you know, motivates a lot of people and they feel very, you know, I think they feel empowered and probably, you know, for whatever reason, the sheriff and district attorney were willing to go along with this, in which case I'm not, I'm not clear what happened. And because the prosecutor dropped the case, I can only assume that, you know, case couldn't stand I can up. only assume yeah. that they, they felt the pressure, but, you know, I, I think that it really points to, I mean, I think it, points to many things that are going on right now you know i think that this this anxiety about about abortion and women is part of an overall sort of moral panic about families and mothering and you know children uh, you know we've seen also like a, a wide variety of panics about um you know people who are lgbtq you know, mm-hmm. people who are transgender. I think that this is all part of, you know, and that also is coming from Texas. So speaking of someone who lives here, this is all coming from Texas, in which case, I, you know, I do think this is part of a project that is really seeking to, um, you know, ensure a very firm and strict definition of mothers and mothering and parenting and family that, you know, is not uh, not allowing for anything other than, you know, what we might call like the sort of mother, you know, heterosexual Christian family. Um, but, you know, those are... For tr- that reason, I do find it very... Yeah, it's very troubling. Well, and more than troubling, though, those are, those are the trigger points for the consolidation of power. I mean, those issues have long been touted as way to bring people that are ultra extreme rightist kind of together giving them the justification of their point of view 
and kind of combining Christianity with the more militant stance. I mean, we saw that in the, with the KKK, but what I find more troubling is this idea that the, the encouragement of the population to tell on each other, because one of the biggest things that happened in Germany during the rise of Hitler was children telling on their parents and people pointing out to the authorities uh, who was, um, you know, doing something that looked or seemed suspicious, thereby giving the enforcers the um, the uh, the chance to do uh, arrests for whatever, you know, and, and bring more people to the table that way. I mean, we see this in, in, in social media apps like Nextdoor, for example, where the entire... Uh, instead of saying, wow, I lost my dog, it's more about my, I saw my neighbor do this or I saw my neighbor do that. So the encouraging of that methodology, that, that modality of telling on somebody or, or pointing the finger or scaring other people in the neighborhood about what might be going on in some home or, I mean, this is already there. This process is being heated up and used in a case like the the trigger issues of abortion or LGBT or or immigrants coming over in caravans or Muslims taking over the world and I mean we can just go on and on and on about the trigger points but it is that process that 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 really scares the crap out of me. <laughs> oh, I agree, and and you know you know what's interesting is that I think America has a very unique relationship with vigilantism um, as in California, you know, to bring it sort of bring it back to California, Southern California, the vigilante and vigilance committees were the law enforcement. Um, I think we often think of vigilantism as or I used to sort of think of vigilantism as like a, a crowd, a rabble of people who decide to go after someone. But in fact, you know, the roots of vigilantism was a community, it was, I mean, it was a community of men, so powerful men would get together and decide, well, we need to go after this person or that person because we feel that they have done wrong. You know, it was, it was organized law enforcement that sort of came together and decided, you know, in what manner did what they saw as justice need to be executed, right? So did they need to get this person or that person? So I think when you think about vigilantism as like the original law enforcement, particularly in places like Southern California and Texas too, um, it it becomes more troubling, but also more like deeply rooted in history as you point out. Mm -hmm. That's true. And, you know, I mean, that's where the whole concept of hanging judge came from, you know, from the from the West. I wanted to speak to you about your Bolts magazine piece, but it looks like we're coming to the end of our conversation. I tell you, Jessica, when I get you uh, in an interview, I could talk probably with you for another good two, three hours. And so you're going to have to come back on the show so we can talk some more. Anytime. Oh, thank you so much. And I want to thank Harcourt's Desert Homes for being our sponsor today. Thank you so much. And thank you, audience, for listening to Joy Silver on Outspoken. Outspoken.